Welcome to the Hunt League Podcast, where we share hunting stories from the field that help pave the way for others to follow. That was the first mistake we made, and that could have that could have been deadly. This is your host, Jared Newman. Let's get started. Welcome to the Hunt League Podcast. Today, we're going to dive into what's actually a bucket list hunt for me. We're going to talk caribou hunting in Alaska with somebody that just returned. Okay, so we've got Ray, uh, who is Bear Ridge Outdoors. Is that on Instagram and in the Hunt League app, or is that just Hunt League? Oh, it's yeah, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We're early on in the month of September doing this recording. You guys just did this in mid-August. Uh, I saw a post on the Huntley community page kind of sharing some of the success and story. So I wanted to hear because uh, I've talked personally with the guy Spike Bull Outdoors who's in the uh, who's in the Huntley platform, the 2020 winner of the Outdoorsman of the Year. He has done an archery caribou hunt in Alaska. Both of those guys have kind of picked their brain in the past. and uh, But it's like, man, all right, you've got fresh information, a fresh experience. This is a bucket list hunt for me. But one of the things that I feel like is always kind of prohibited is like, well, the time you have to take to go do it and the intimidation factor of like all the different things from like, well, it's not just the cost of a tag. It's the travel up there. It's the logistics of, all right, now what do I do if I shoot something? And now what do I do to haul things home? And now what do I, you know, it's always the next, now what do I do? So while it's fresh on your mind, I want to dive into your Alaska caribou hunt. You did, did you do a guided hunt, DIY? How'd you, how did you go about deciding how you were going to tackle, uh, you know, what is a bucket list hunt for you? Well, um, this hunt has been a dream of mine since my grandpa did it and he ended up going with a guide. Like I said, you were saying it's, it's pretty expensive. So what we ended up doing was trying to do a DIY hunt up there and we're just going to go out, find a piece of, uh, state, state land, public land. And which is hard to find in Alaska, right? Like it's hard to find public land or no, there's, there's, <laughs> a, there's a, so much <laughs> land. I couldn't believe how many miles that land went uh, we yeah. wouldn't have, yeah it's just endless alaska i've been there one time in 2012 so it's been 10 years august 10 years ago and it's a place that is so like almost like mythical in my mind because even yeah. just flying into it you look down and like the colors of green and the and the volcanoes and mountains and it was just like beyond anything I've ever experienced and even when you're stepping and walking on the land which I guess you guys did a lot of that tundra it's like setting your foot on that it's different the ground itself feels different than anything I've ever stepped on before you so can't, you can't even explain it to somebody and they wouldn't they wouldn't understand it I've been told so many times what it's like and I still wasn't prepared. I was like, oh, whatever. You know, I, I hike 15 miles a day up here. So I yeah, I've walked I, through soggy grass before and it's but it's not like soggy grass. I, I don't even know how to explain it. Yeah, I was thinking if you had a waterbed with holes in it for miles and it was piles of wet laundry everywhere. <laughs> it was worse than that. Yeah, you can't, yeah. you can't even justify how much pain that was. But Daniel, did you just say it was worse than that? Yeah. Yeah. Daniel, give us your description. This is Daniel. How old are you? 14. 14. That's what I thought. So you're 14 years old. 
This is coming from the mind of a 14-year-old. What is walking in the Alaska tundra like for you? Describe it. I don't know, like um, really pillows, I guess. Like really, really, really soft pillows. Like you take a step and you instantly sink into a sinkhole. <laughs> You're walking on marshmallows. Yes. It's your marshmallows. <laughs> like really weird. Is it kind of like? Do you feel like it's kind of like that memory foam? How like you kind of step into it That's and then you kind of like sink oh, yeah. in. But then yeah. like when you're trying to step out, it doesn't just like propel you out. It's like it, it just stays. Yeah. Yeah. It was eight to twelve inches of squish, and then sometimes the squish had water at the bottom. Sometimes it was up to your knee in the water. You, but mo- for the most part, our hike ended up just being just wet to the ankles. But it, yeah, you'd squish down that soft pillow squish. And then you try to walk over the tussocks or around them. And they they were then a separate obstacle. You'd, you'd roll your ankles or you'd stretch your legs so far to stretch over one that your, your muscles would fatigue very quick. Okay. So I don't even know what you're talking about when you say the tussocks. So like, okay. um, tell me what that is. I think I read, read the definition. It's a, um, a chunk of grass growing in the middle of another chunk of grass that is <laughs> separate separate type of vegetation and so there are the little round balls of pollard yeah like size of bowling balls are bigger um grass clods uh grass grass clumps on top of all this squishiness so you can choose to walk on the tussocks or around them um walking on them if you want to stay your feet dry that's good but you'll roll your ankles if you walk around they're them because right. they're rounded yep and they they kind of tilt they're not they're not solid chunks of grass. If you step on it, it'll lean over. Okay, so it's almost like a game of wipeout. Like you're just playing wipeout, yeah. walking across where you just got these things that you don't know how it's going to respond when you step your foot on it. Yeah, yeah, and that that is the worst part of the hike is what was just hiking and that exhausted us so bad. Okay, you did a rifle hunt or bow hunt? We started with the bow. Okay, so um, when we get up to that we went up the dalton highway and you can hunt uh from the center of the highway out to the five miles either side of the highway that's the archery corridor so you can only use a bow from five miles out from the center of the highway and then you can shoot with a rifle after that um, yeah because the pipeline runs along that and they don't want anybody shooting the pipeline and i i think also that they didn't want people to come up there and see how easy it is and just slaughter caribou so you really got to put your work in to get out there to, you know, if, if they had hundreds of people find out that there's thousands of caribou and they just pull up and shoot them off the road with a rifle, they'd be decimated. So that's another reason I assume they made that five mile corridor. Yeah. I mean, and that, that makes a ton of sense because they, the caribou migrate on that same corridor every year. So it would be, it would be pretty dang easy, especially with our modern rifles, just to pull over beside the road and take shots when you guys were driving on the dalton highway were you seeing caribou on your drive no on the way up um we had daylight from cold foot all the way up to dead horse and that's uh, 190 more miles between those and we were supposed to see caribou and we didn't see one the whole oh, trip oh my gosh that was so discouraging we pulled yeah, up did that freak once. you out oh yeah i was like oh no migration they're, they're not started or they're already passed and we already committed to these days with the dead horse and we got the dead horse had a 
a snack and then we turned around to go to the uh, lookout point 60 miles south that we'd found. And then that's when we first saw them four caribou across the road. I tried to put them in a YouTube video and we saw them crossing the road right in front of us. And we're like, oh, this is perfect. We're seeing them. And after that, they're everywhere. We saw more caribou than I can ever count. There was herds really? over every hill. Yes. And but, why, why is that? Was that because you changed location or you said you already drove through that and then you decided to come back to the lookout point? Yep. And um, I don't under, I don't know why I thought we should have seen them. If they don't pick a certain type of data to march across the tundra. Um, but somehow we just, we were driving fast or we weren't, we were just watching the wrong way, but coming back all of a sudden we knew what we were looking for. And, you know, and then your eyes are able to start picking them out. We're like, Oh, there they are. But that tundra is so vast. We could see 10 miles out there and you could pass up hundreds of caribou and you'd only see them if you pull up your binoculars. Yeah. And that's probably what we, we did slow down and start looking we were ready to go set up camp okay so give me some ideas like you had to because you've got your son with you now daniel were you were you only planning to shoot a rifle the whole time or did you have a bow that you could shoot as well um i was only gonna shoot with a rifle because my um dad only had his bow not mine so either way from the beginning were you committed to walking five miles because if daniel has a tag You've got to get out past the five mile mark for him. And then was the idea that maybe you would carry your bow ray so that oh. if you saw a caribou on the way out, you could get, you could shoot a caribou with your bow. Yep. That's exactly what we planned. Yeah. We, we knew we were going to pack our camp on our back and hike out five miles. And in our minds, we're just going to hike out in the morning, shoot a bull and come back, you know? So we we're going to put the camp on our pack and hike out five miles. I'll carry the bow. If we run into a, a stockable situation, I'll try it. If, if not, we'll just march through. And we ran into several caribou that way and probably six good stocks. But it was just so flat, wide open and nothing to hide behind that stalking these guys were was very difficult. So you found it really difficult with a bow just because there was nothing to hide. I mean, you're, you've just got open tundra with like no cover. Yes, I think people who shoot antelope at 100 yards could have gotten a, a couple of nice bulls where we were. I'm only comfortable about 50, and these caribou were so curious, they would walk up to us after we startled them. They would circle us and then try to walk into our wind, and sometimes that brought them 60, 70 yards. <laughs> and a lot of the cows and little bulls walked, you know, close. We've had, we have one nice picture of a cow just in our laps because she couldn't catch our wind, and she got so close and trying to figure us out. She, yeah, there's, she was so unaccustomed to you guys as humans being in her territory that it was like, what are you? You're not a bear, but. Yep. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. The morning that we got, we uh, set up our tent on the, where we, we parked the truck 60 miles south of Dead Horse, set up the tent and it was fogged out so bad. And we ended up just sleeping and we woke up in the morning and we got up at seven and we couldn't see anything. We are on a we are on a vantage point that we knew was miles, and we couldn't see more than hundred yards. It was just wet, thick fog. Um, so that, was that pretty constant? Did you deal with that almost daily, or was that just oh, on one or two of the days? It was every day we were there. We we were concerned of getting lost in the fog, so we were very cautious about where we moved for the most part. And 
but I'd say around 1130, the fog lifted enough that we could see out there 10 miles and we started picking out bedded bulls and a whole bunch of herds. And then all of a sudden there was herd to the left, and two more herds to the left coming over the highway. And we were over a hundred caribou and we hadn't even left camp yet. That's incredible. Okay. Let's talk about expectations because expectations can kind of make or break kind of your experience. Cause if you go in with super high expectations and you come out empty handed, it can be this kind of hole in your soul kind of a deal. So what went into planning your trip? So there was several hours at work flipping through um, Google of all the outfitters in the area and checking out where they hunted and what we could expect for timelines. Um, I knew I wanted to do a DIY because I think that's so cool. You can go in public land and, and just hunt. Um, so I ended up finding out that the, the porcupine herd, the one that goes up to the Arctic ocean and, you know, down through um, Coldfoot, that herd is pretty cool and pretty common to hunt. And then there's the 40 mile herd. That's more, um, east towards Canada. I knew about those two herds and how, what their numbers were. And then, so I got on Google and find out their timeline of their migrations, where they would be uh, by, by the month and compared to the statistics that the online was telling me. So mid-August was a fairly good time to put myself on the Dalton Highway. And that's when we could expect, you know, the, the beginning, middle and tail of the herd just scattered through there. I guess there's a thing where if they their migration slowed or sped up based on the weather. the weather, and they were saying if there's not been a big um, fall storm or midsummer storm, they're not going to start the migration. I don't know what that had to do with, but we we had just gotten there after several days of heavy rain, so we figured that was a good good timeline. We got there and the rain stopped. The fog was bad, hmm. um, and like I told you, we didn't see anything and um, and then all of a sudden they were there. So I think okay, so you just right. You did your research on looking at the migration and, and kind of figured out, all right, the time that you guys wanted to be at was somewhere towards the middle of that migration. Mm-hmm. You you checked with different guides and outfitters just to kind of get a decent idea of what areas that you that caribou are going to be migrating through. Um, how did you build your travel schedule and your basically your budget, like is if you decide to do a DIY, you know, what what was your expectations of being able to do a DIY versus your reality? Um, I decided to um I didn't know what my price was going to be. So I just made a rough draft of everything. You know, I wrote down tags, uh, rental truck, food. Uh, mileage. I, I measured the Dalton Highway from Fairbanks to all the way back to Dead Horse and back. Um, every little detail I could think of. Um, I may be missing some, but it mostly was the tags, food, gas, rental truck, maybe a hotel, freezing meat, and transporting meat. So I had all that to go off of. And that's so why I researched each one of those until I found the best deal um, that could get. And uh, and that gave me a rough draft of about $7,000. And I was like, I can cut that down, you know? So we found, we found some uh, hiking meals that we could just cut the price down to like $6 a meal. We'll only take two meals a day. Um, we bought our, 
we did this planning about nine months before we went and it wasn't okay. a lot of people wait two years or so we um i just every time i had extra cash i'd stuff it in my little piggy bank and every time i had uh nothing to spend the end of the month on i'd stuff it away and sold a couple things on facebook but um it ended up not being too hard to save for this it was twenty dollars here and there i predicted 7500 or so and i think i overspent on that i haven't done the final calculations but um the gas up there is eight dollars a gallon i was i was thinking five after once you leave fairbanks it's 740 at coldfoot and eight dollars at, at dead horse um yeah. and dollars. the you know the meat i somehow i didn't think about the cost of the meat um i brought it back with me on the plane i didn't realize that the baggage well, i'd have to pay for baggage i, I totally spaced that so sure. just little, little things like that but for the most part yeah seventy five hundred dollars it got three of us with round trip airplane tickets and two tags uh daniel and myself the rental truck and the satellite phone we rented everything came around you know seventy five to eight hundred eight thousand dollars we weren't too much over budget you you said three people but i've got you and daniel so was there a third hunter or the third person was what so uh the third guy was a friend from work brian mcgregor he um he always wanted to go to Alaska and hunt. He's never had the opportunity. So I bought his airplane ticket so he can come with us because I need a, I need another adult to have, help pack meat. He's always wanted to go. So we bought his airplane ticket and then he ran the video camera for us. Okay. So he, he went with you stride for stride on the hunt, but he did not have a tag. Right. Okay. So that doesn't cost you necessarily much more in gas or anything like that. You just, you carried an extra body with you. Did you plan for that with your tent and did you bring like a four man tent or what did you do tent wise? Yeah. We end up having to take our, our family tent here. It was a five man um, Eureka tent. And I think that it's very light under five pounds, but end up putting that in the back of the backpack. Um, we also had the bear fence was wrapped up behind the tent as well. Did you feel like that was necessary? I did doing my research. It seemed necessary. Once we got out there, I was like, there's no bears. I didn't see any signs and nobody's talking about bears and we didn't see one bear. So we never put the fence up. Really? Um, yeah. And then we talked to people later and they said they hunt bears out then where we were. I, we didn't see any scat or any tracks and it didn't just, it didn't seem to me like I needed to worry about bears. Interesting. Yeah, Cause that I, would definitely be a, a you know, I, I would say, a concern of mine especially if you have a carcass down or meat because i've heard you know a grizzly can smell you know blood 10 miles away kind of a deal no they'll, they'll come moving across the tundra to come get to a carcass so i would i would have some concerns about that because you're hauling that back and you cannot move fast across that tundra no no there's no way of getting away from anything you're you're exhausted one mile in. So you're not ready to run from anything at that point. Okay. So we talked about cost expectations. Let's talk about the hike in like you, you knew that you were going to be walking through tundra. You, you knew some stuff from what you'd read it. You've already said it was kind of different than what you expected as far as stepping foot on it. But give us your experience from when you're getting out of the truck, you're loading the pack on your back and you're saying, all right, this is the route. We're going we're gonna to go. Uh, when you set out, 
what how long did you anticipate that five mile hike taking versus your reality yeah so we had set up the tent like i said in the morning 11 o'clock we're ready to go and um we can see caribou two five ten miles out we know we're going to run into them so you know like hunting the northwest we see oh i can go out five miles to the to the line and be back or be out to the line in a couple hours yeah, two experience. hours. <laughs> You're like two hours, we'll be there. I'm like there they are. Let, let's just pack hard and go get them, and then come back. Um, we anticipated no more than an eight-hour hunt, you know, to to deal with that with the first caribou. So we step off the gravel where we're camping, and immediately the you're like, oh, this is different. And like we explained the texture and the weirdness of the tundra. So we walk down this hill, and it's it's terrible going downhill. So we just you know, just try it. And we, we cut over to another gravel bar and then that that's, that's nice to walk on. And we immediately knew that this sucked. Um, <laughs> you immediately knew that that was that your expectations were wrong on that. Oh yeah. And so I back up a bit because of us ignorance of the tundra from experience and our anticipation in and out, like we do in Idaho, we're like, Hey, let's just march out to those caribou five miles out and come back. Let's just leave our tent and sleeping bags and just take two meals each and we'll hike out there thump one and come back hmm. and um i just wrote a book and it's published i'll show you later but um it details this entire hunt that way but that was the first mistake we made and that could have that could have been deadly what we yeah, and that's up- almost a life-threatening mistake that you that you made there and i'd like people to know that that it's not idaho it's not montana um Five miles may as well be 15. And yeah, and it's it's not just like walking through the snow on a Colorado hunt. It's like it's it's very different. Like it's not just wet conditions. Oh yeah. It's different. Yeah, that was the worst thing I've ever put myself and put my son through. Uh it was scary. But so we All right, out- so what time of day did you leave camp? Like what, what time of day did you set out? Because you did not bring camp on your back because you were anticipating going out and back same day. Uh, we left at 1130 uh, after the fog lifted, 1130 in the okay. morning. And we knew we had until 1130, 12 o'clock of daylight because the um, the sun sets for four hours that time of day. So we anticipated, yeah, just getting back just before dark or even still some light left with the caribou. We anticipated getting one. There were so many. Um, our first obstacle we got to was an impassable creek. It They look skinny, but sticking our sticks, our walking sticks down there. They were over up to my arm and they're only like four feet wide in some places. So we think we can cross and you can't. So we end up stripping down and found a spot that was only two feet deep. And we walked across in our underwear and we did, we managed to find a spot to get across, but that took 20 minutes out of our day tr- going back and forth on that Creek, trying to find a crossing. Wow. Um, but this that, time- and that's something you wouldn't expect. Cause you're looking at, a map and you're like okay yeah there's a creek here so you you anticipated a creek you just didn't anticipate it being almost like a brick wall like <laughs> impassable and that 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 um was gonna make or break our hunt if we couldn't cross this creek we got to walk a mile back to camp and figure something else out so that's what drove us to try and we found we ended up finding a crossing um and we and this whole time we're we're walking through herds of caribou because we can't get to them. They see us. So we're just going to push on to the five mile line and we go up, 
up a little uh, rise and down another rise and there's another creek and it's just as bad some places are worse and so that spends another 20 minutes 30 minutes going back and forth looking for a crossing because they're full of uh, big brush on the sides and then it looks skinny and you step in it and it's up past your hip so we were about to do that Um, we stripped down again and we found a caribou trail going across the lowest spot and that this one was probably up to our knees and we we got across threw our gear across and then got dressed again and it, it was cold it was high mid 30s 40 degrees Whoo! that's an ice bath so it takes a while to get yourself warm again yeah so along with not bringing our gear now we're dropping our t- our core temperature um we anticipated heating up by hiking we're just gonna hike and warm up we dried off with our thermals and we put our clothes back on boots back on and at this point our socks are still dry so we we end up hiking up and we run into a few nice bulls bedded and a few cows and they're all around us and so we like okay we got to be close you know we're two and a half hours into this hike and i pull up the uh the the onyx on my phone and it says 1.3 miles from camp so we still had another uh 3.7 3.7 to go before we can even use the rifle and yeah. we are our bodies are destroyed and uh we're drained because we we thought we were hiking hard we thought we were just covering yeah, yeah yeah how many hours in was that you think you'd uh, already been hiking for three hours or so I think about three hours yeah um to get 1.3 miles and and th- there was a few stocks within there we were stocking a few caribou so that slowed us down sometimes but that, w- that was just mind-blowing to look at the clock and look at the miles and say holy crap and yeah. then um, sometimes in that we're thinking, well, maybe we made a mistake. Maybe we might not make it back before dark. So we went um, up that next hill and we can see these caribou and we know they're at the five mile line. So we're going to head for them. And we end up just hiking this flat, flat, no more hills forever. And, you know, hundred yards, hundred steps and then sit and rest, hundred steps, sit and rest. And Brian, by the then his groin was was pulled or something. It is every time he took a step, it was shocked. And oh um, my gosh! You know, you know, you, and then the pack on my hip, it felt it felt like it was just you know burning muscle, like I was doing stair steppers. And so we're like three and a half miles in, and our bodies are getting bad. And you can tell it's already past three or four o'clock. We're like, okay, now this is this is this is bad because we're if we we're so from camp but we're close enough to the line. We still have a chance, you know, we're close enough to the five mile line. We can still get one and rush back to camp. Yeah. But your exhaustion levels and your realization of there's no such thing as rushing back to camp. Like how do you cross a river naked with a caribou on your back? You know, like all those different factors. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, that was, it was pretty crazy that, uh, that we actually decided to keep going. Um, oh wow! I was ready. I was ready for the twist in this, where it's like you realize no. at that point we've got to go back to get to camp. So at this point, you're three point seven miles in, knowing that you still have that same one point three that already took you three hours to do at the beginning to tack on here at the end. Yeah, and we're like, well, our packs are light. If we get one, we can gut it and then go back and come back the next day, maybe. Um, it it wasn't reality, but we were we were just excited to be in Alaska and just to do this. Yeah, um, we get to four miles, four and a half, and there's caribou out in front of us. And we're like, okay, let's just bump these. They'll they'll run across the five mile line. We'll cross and we'll we'll shoot them. So we get over the next rise that the and we push those caribou and we get over there and they they 
went left instead of straight out to the line. So they're they're not getting out there where we need them. But no big deal. It's like private, it's like private land in Colorado. The elk know that they're safe on this ranch. It's like they like to hang out between that four and five mile line where like nobody's really going to shoot them as an archery guy and then rifle guys can't shoot them. So they're in the untouchable zone. Exactly. We end up getting over, just carry over. We're not worried about those guys leaving. We get over there. We cross the five mile line, drop into this little valley. And there's three valleys going left, right and up and sideways. We're like, this is a good spot. We're past the five mile line and there's no caribou to be seen. Huh. And it's like, holy cow, what's going on? Like, you know, it's getting eight o'clock and we're sitting yeah. there like, this is dumb. Now we're screwed. We re- Then we realized, okay, we don't have a caribou. Let's either go back and we're not doing this hike again. This was brutal. Let's just go back and hunt somewhere else. Or we can tough it out through the night, four hours of darkness. And you only had two meals each. Yeah. And at Let's this just, point, had you eaten one of those meals already? Yes, we had, we had one meal already. Okay. So you're so, down to final meal. In the debate of like, do I stay overnight? Yeah. So we're With no gear, no gear. And you know, it, it's cold and wet fog. And, and, uh, so far our socks are wet. We're like, Hey, we're not going to make it back by dark. Anyways, the fog's rolling in and we don't want to risk getting lost. Let's just pull up a bush and, you know, make emergency shelters or whatever. So yeah, the fog did roll in. We couldn't see more than a hundred yards again and it's getting nine o'clock. So there were a couple of caribou at that point, but they were so far, we weren't going to go after them. We're just going to work on our shelter. And this when is, you say work on your shelter, I mean, there's oh, not wood out there. There's nothing, there's nothing to build a shelter out of. No, right? what we had, whatever was in our pack was our shelter there. We pulled up next to this little dirt mound and there's a couple bushes there. We backed up into a corner and this is the, the coolest survival situation I've ever been in. And it, it is dangerous, but um, I took out my ex- two extra pairs of socks. I gave Daniel a dry pair for his feet and a dry pair for his hand. I gave him my thermal shirt. And then I wrapped my soaked feet up in game bags. Um, I had two game bags on my feet. And then I dumped our packs out. And we slid our, our feet into our packs like sleeping bags. Gosh. We had our frog tog rain gear on. And that, that was just to keep us dry. Yep. And then we had these... Uh, big black garbage bags, which we learned for, from survival uh, training for the kids a long time ago. So we put those garbage bags over our heads and tucked them under our butts. Then we cut a little breathing hole. And that's supposed to like hot box you, keep you warm. Yep. And so we laid there and it was eight, it was nine o'clock, still plenty of daylight left. We, so we laid there from like 830 and just froze and we're shaking and freezing and it, it gets dark and endless dark. It didn't we thought four hours would be quick and then it just stayed dark. Oh, bro. Um, but so <laughs> at, at, at points, you know, we're wet and cold. My feet hurt so bad for a while, then they didn't hurt. And I, I reached down there to rub them and it felt like I was touching someone else's foot. I was like, yeah, oh, it's, it doesn't feel like it's even connected to your body uh-huh. at this point. It, it is. It's like when you sleep on your arm and you like can't move yeah. it. It was, it was that bad. And all of us, we still have long lasting uh, frost nip. Like my toes still two weeks later uh-huh. feel like they're still waking up. Yep. Um, yeah, that was that was pretty bad. But we end up just falling asleep and waking up, freezing, shivering and repositioning. Um, the fog is rolling in wet and heavy. But then, you know, it's so foggy and the clouds are so bad that when the sun did come out, it wasn't out. It was just less dark outside. So we knew it was morning and it was just 
it was still heavy fog. Daniel, you're 14. Your dad is trying to help you through a survival situation. Were you, uh, I mean, I'm looking at you, but other people can't see you. You're 14. You're, you look tall, but you look skinny. So there's not a lot of body fat on you. Um, so, I mean, were you just shivering the whole night or what, what was, what was going on for you? Yeah, I was shivering almost the whole entire night. I was really, really cold. Were I, you afraid? Oh, not really. But my gloves got soaked somehow. My gloves were like... Oh, the sock gloves. I guess. Yeah, the sock <laughs> glove. <laughs> the sock yeah. puppet you were wearing. And then my aunt, that when I woke up in the morning, my feet and everything and my holder backpack were soaked somehow. Oh, my gosh. While I was on really cold and wet. Yeah. And there's nothing to build a fire with out there because everything you're touching is wet and there's no wood that's that you could burn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was there was nothing. We didn't we had um, we had um, flint and magnesium. We had all the fire starting stuff, but uh, nothing to light. There's one bush right next to us. but it was. Oh, yeah. It was just a frozen wet bush. Um, From my miles away. Bush. So at that point, we're like, Earlier, we're thinking we shot a caribou. We can make a blanket. Let's just shoot any caribou and make a blanket and just huddle um, if we had to. But it didn't come down to that. the The fog was so bad in the morning, and I was sick of my feet getting cold. And so I I uh, leaned up real quick, ripped off the garbage bag, and I was going to reach down and rub my feet. And then right behind me, I heard a snort, like, "Holy crap! There's something there!" And I turned around, and there's this bull caribou eating the bushes that were laying under and he had no idea we were there but when i stood up that just spooked him no so, way like when you're saying the bushes you're laying under like are you talking like this thing's within 15 yards of you 10 oh, yeah. yards like 15 yards yeah i would say about that close um we i startled him and and i thought i was going to get trampled for a second <laughs> um he ended up circling like and you know i say how curious they are he's yeah. a little bit 60 yards and I had the rifle and the bow next to me and I could have shot him with the bow. I was thinking, Oh, I didn't, at that point, I was just so excited that there was a caribou and I want this to be over. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to warm my hands up anyway. So I was like, get the camera. And Brian grabs the camera and, um, and I shoot this bull in the neck 60 yards from where we're, I'm still, my feet are still inside my, get my hunting pack. Yeah. Um, you're not even really awake yet. No, it was like you're I, not I think you're not dressed and ready. Less than a minute of me here uh sitting up warm at my feet. I I shot all him. you said was there's a bull bang. I said, yeah, they said there's a bull, and Brian's like, what? I'm like, get the camera and and uh yes, bang. And he he fell right to the ground. So did you actually get it on film? Yeah, yeah, we got that one. Brian had that enough was, time to it's, a, it. it's a crappy video. Brian, we're shaking and Brian's cold and you know, the focus isn't even on there, but you could see him uh, standing there and just fall down. Um, it's it's there, but it's not like I, antis- I envisioned for my caribou hunt video. Sure. Yeah, you yeah. bring somebody along, a dedicated camera person, in hopes that, like, you're going to have this, like, cinematography award-winning film. But uh, the reality is maybe a little bit different, just like walking through the tundra. So we're talking about expectations. We talked about cost. We talked about the hike in, which just sounded absolutely grueling. Now, expectation, I think you had set out with a bow in hand, hoping that you could get one done with a bow. Uh, Now that you've passed the five mile line, you have the choice of either. 
coming home, are you disappointed that you didn't try to use your bow or that you took that caribou? Uh, you didn't yeah. have time to think about it. Do you have any regrets on taking that caribou versus another caribou using a rifle instead of a bow? Give me that expectation and did um, it meet your expectation? So rifle over bow didn't bug me. Um, I was, I was happy. My, like I was saying earlier, my grandpa did this hunt through an outfitter, but I wanted to recreate this in my lifetime. And I was, I wanted to do the tundra march, get a caribou and pack it out. And that was my goal. I wasn't disappointed on the shot of this caribou. It was a dink. It wasn't a nice bull at all. Um, we had seen better bulls, but my, I wanted to get a caribou in the tundra on a DIY hunt. And I wasn't ashamed of, of uh, shooting the first legal bull I could come across. Yeah. Um, it was more about the experience of hiking out in that tundra and, and doing this brutal hunt. And yeah. anybody that knows that we hiked the five mile line and, and knows what that's like, they're, they're not concerned with the size of the bull that I got. Like it's, it's, it's a, it's a challenge in itself just to get out there and do that. There's a lot of respect from somebody else that's that's walked in your boots before and understands what went into mm -hmm. that. Yeah, only thing that um made me feel not like too proud of my bull is is his bull, is Daniel's bull. It may because his is so much larger, it makes you question yours or what? Um his is it, dog size. Mine, mine, we uh I think we got like um we end up with 200 pounds of meat after we cut it just yesterday. So I say mine was one third the size of his for for weight wise. Um, for, when you say 200 pounds, is 200 pounds of meat between two animals or or that 200 yeah. was off yours? For from for both of them. After we after we cut it up, packaged it, we weighed it all. We're at we're at 200 pounds in the freezer right now, and that's that's liver, heart. And every backstrap neck, that's everything. all the edible meat. And I know in Alaska, they're super uh, like high restrictions on like you, you have to take every piece of yeah. meat, like yeah. you don't leave anything on the Yeah. On we, the we had to roll up the meat all the way up to the, the ear line, you know, the, up to yeah. the mastery process. And just, yeah. And just roll that meat best you can out of there. And then we did a rib roll on both sides and then we just deboned everything in our there's places in Alaska you can't debone. You have to haul out, but in our area we were allowed to. So that was that was a good thing for us. Wow, I didn't uh, even, I didn't even know that. So that's something to pay attention oh, to in the Oh yeah. There's so many regulations. I should have went over that earlier with you. There's so much stuff that you have to look into about legalities, but in Alaska you can shoot from the road and and where we're at you have to be like so far off the road. So there's places you can actually just put, stand in a ditch and shoot. And that's, that's weird to me. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of rules. It's all in the book though. And yeah. that was one of them we had to look out for. Is this technically like day one of your hunt? You've already had a travel day, but yes. day, day one of your hunt, I guess, is the, is the death hike and March all the way through the tundra. So waking up in the morning of day two is when you took your bull. Yeah. First thing in the morning, I'd say six o'clock or so. Okay. Um, we didn't check. Oh, this is the, yeah, the thing was we woke up, we didn't, um, we got the bull down. Daniel takes a couple pictures and then it is so cold out oh. there. Um, the batteries on all oh, of our phones yeah. died. It, they didn't handle it. They were charged, but they didn't handle the cold. So the phones died pretty quick. And that was our map out of there. Oh my God. Fog rolled in as well. Uh, the fog was there when I shot the bull. 
um, it didn't quite lift, but we had a, a general direction where we came from. And so we, we decided to get to that top ridge and know where we're headed and then wait for the fog. And we get to the top ridge and we, we pick our next path and the fog rolls in heavier and heavier and we, we had to stop. And then when it lifts after an hour, we find out where we think we're knowing we're going. We don't have an onyx anymore. And then we hike down this canyon. All of a sudden, it's the wrong mountain. Like the, the train looks different. We never came from this direction. Where are we? Oh, crap. Um, oh that, yeah, so without a map and the fog rolling in, that was, that was very slow in that sense because we had to, before we took any steps, we had to know which way we were headed. And and everything looks the same out there. So there you don't have like these. I'm I'm walking towards this mountain or towards this or that. I mean, you have a few little uh, identifiable landmarks, yeah. but yeah, and it's, it's, it's rise little rises and so no ridges you can pick. Little rises and little valleys, and sometimes there's hidden valleys. You get to the ledge and oh, there's a valley down there. And uh, I had my phones in my pocket. We were heating up, and I'd say a little ways into there, my phone was able to come back to life from being hot in my pocket. And so I was like, oh, this is great. I turned it on, pulled up Onyx and, and pointed us towards camp. We start hiking that way. And all of a sudden, you know, four miles out, you can see our yellow tent on the ridge way up there by the highway. So that's just a big relief. You know, I didn't just lose my, my family and we didn't just lose everybody out in the fog. You know? Yeah. Because yeah. it went one wrong valley. We'd been 20 miles in the tundra and waiting for a fishing game to pick us up. Wow. Did you um, we, have any other device? Did you have an inReach? Did you have a, you know, a satellite, a spot, you know, any, any kind of communication thing if you needed to kind of yeah. signal an SOS? Yep. I rented a, um, a satellite phone and I had all my, I had the fishing game numbers. I had um, some numbers from Dead Horse for some people playing. So I, I felt that we were going to make it home that night in the worst case scenario, we were still going to be home. So I wasn't concerned with that. I had my Garmin GPS. Um, but you know that those double A batteries didn't hold up, and I don't know. I've never experienced cold draining batteries like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like it got you really bad because I mean, you even with those Garmin's, if you're running them around the clock, you should still get at least twenty four to thirty six hours. You know, like, but you don't have to keep them on. You can turn them off between times that you're checking. Uh -huh. so that's really poor, you know, batteries. And I, I'm assuming because your initial plan when you were leaving was to walk out and hike back same day you didn't bring extra battery packs or other things because no. you just you figured you wouldn't need to recharge yeah and that's that's a big deal people need to know if they're going to do that hike like don't leave your gear back um wow. you wanted a, li a light pack so we could run in and run out okay so when did you decide to eat your last meal um, did you eat that in the morning to kind of get your like after the caribou or did you do um, you kind of ration it out no, we got, yeah, we were going to wait, you know, until we were for sure where camp was. And I say we, after we saw camp, we get, and then we're out to th mile three. Um, I stopped and ate mine. Daniel says he didn't eat his. So I guess you didn't eat yours. I ate mine at camp. Oh, okay. I'm so he ate his later that night. You didn't eat anything for almost 24 hours oh, while yeah. you were hiking yeah. through. He hiked, yeah, on the way in, he had one, you know, midday. This, this hike out, like, you know, as a way in, it was a hundred yards at a time, but on the way out this time, it was 30 steps and rest. Our legs hadn't healed overnight. So our legs are already still spent. So it's 30 steps and rest, 30 steps and lay down, 30 steps and stand. And it was so brutal. Uh, so this hike took over 12 hours or so after we got back. So we shot the bull at six in the morning. We got to camp at 1030 at night. 
on um, just that that straight hiking. So that's 15 hours. I don't know how many that was straight to the camp. Unbelievable. That's worse than any elk pack out I'm sure you've ever oh, done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I thought your new cow was pretty bad. But not that, uh, yeah, the creeks at this point, are so, everything's wet. Our pants, our socks, our boots. We have no dry clothes. So we're not going to take off wet clothes to cross a wet creek. So we just chucked through the two crossings we found. Oh, my gosh. Out. But then you're soaked in 30-degree water. So you're just shivering uncontrollably. And the only only thing got us back was just let's just hike let's just go we're only three miles from camp let's just push this and we turn on the heater in the truck when we get there and that's what we oh. did we got to the camp and we didn't even unpack anything we just put the bags by the truck and we stripped our underwear and turned the heater on oh and, my uh, gosh okay so this is not what you would recommend to somebody uh, to experience this like what are what are some of the workarounds because there's some of that stuff where I think like, yeah, you certainly could have brought your camp and tent and shelter in. You would have been also carrying a lot more weight in with you. Um, it's not going to stop you from getting wet, like the the rain, the fog, walking through that tundra. All of that is going to get you wet. And I don't really care how waterproof your boots are. No. Nothing holds up to that kind of. No. Abuse. So, what well, I mean, what do you bring us? Like if you're if you're outlining this and telling somebody how you would plan it different, I mean, are you saying to pack a second pair of boots? Because who wants to carry an extra six pounds on their pack? You know, like yeah. what what so, are you actually recommending to somebody? This is this is what I recommend. If I would never do this again, but if I did, I would take uh, myself and three grown men. Um, this, distribute the weight of the camp. That's why we left it because it was heavy. That way, four grown men, you can distribute your weight, your tent, sleeping bags, food. And then when you hike out, I would wear those waist waders, muck boots that go up to your waist or, or even yep. bib. Just wear that yep. the entire time because you can cross the creeks in those. They have traction on the boots and your legs won't get wet. Even with our gaiters, we were getting wet. I mean, uh, those waders are heavy, though, even even yeah, some of the stocking foot and even some of those other ones. But you would just say that weight is well worth, I mean, that, that is worth its weight in gold. Cause then you're not having to strip down. You can maintain your, your heat. I mean, there's so many different layers, like, a there's a company like Rogers sporting goods and stuff that makes kind of insulated gators that are waders that you can kind of zip in an insulation layer or zip them out, you know, like, so that that would be an option, but you're dealing with weight and maybe boots that aren't near as comfortable to hike in, but yeah. You need mountain style boots when you're hiking Montana, Washington, those types of mountains. Could you get away with wearing kind of like your waiter, like bog style? Yeah. Boot? I think so. We didn't need traction or anything. Uh, there was squishy enough. Every It didn't matter. We could have got out there with slippers and not had any problem with traction. But there are some companies that I forget the name, but they make very light disposable waders. You can you take them with you, hunt hunt the heck out of them and they may get ripped later, but you can just toss them later. And they're not, they're like $40. I forget what they're called, but um, yeah, those I was looking into getting and I just couldn't find a pair that, that got here in time from Amazon. You don't think you would go, just go in with a regular set of like waterfowl waders or something like that. I think those might be, if you're talking about the big heavy ones, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't buy the neoprene, but you can definitely get, you know, like, I know the Sitka makes them and they're a thousand bucks for their kind of like Gore-Tex one. So it's not going to be too heavy, 
but it would still, there's a trade-off there where I'm like, man, what you're telling me is kind of terrifying because it is a, I'm telling you, it's a dream hunt. And it's like, are you willing to be miserable? Sure. You know, but like at what cost, at what price? Because the more gear you carry in, like, obviously we would all want to bring our whole house with us if we could and just bring that, but it's yeah. like, you're so limited. You have to unscare you a bit. If we back up to bring in four grown men to, to haul the stuff out, we would have been fine if we got out there with our tent and sleeping bags and our extra clothes. Um, just sleeping bags. Well, sleeping bags would have got soaked, oh. but because that way we could have gotten a tent, swapped out our clothes, put our sleeping bags on, and we would have been fine. We would have been. So, yeah, you could go out there without the waiters, I'm assuming. And and I didn't mean to scare you so bad about not going. It was I just oh, yeah. I had such a bad experience, but there are workarounds. Um, so if you went out there with you know, enough people to haul your camp and then you were able to get in the tent and get warm, staying overnight wouldn't have been a problem. That okay. was our goal to stay out there overnight in the tent and hunt from a five mile line. Everything to me comes back down to like, all right, expectations. Did it, did it meet? Did it exceed? One of the things that I always find interesting is like some of my best hunting memories and stories and things like that. The ones that you find yourself retelling are the stories where things didn't always go as you planned, or they were just much more difficult than what you had expected. And it sounds like this will be one of those legendary stories that you and your son get to share because you both endured something that, I mean, it had a legitimate, there was some legitimate risk in, in what you guys did with like sleeping out there with like long-term <laughs> frostbite or the, I mean, losing feeling being yeah. that cold shivering when you're shivering like that, you're, you're burning calories and losing energy because your body's just trying to keep, you know, it's core temperature up. So, I mean, there was, there's a lot of stuff that went on now that you you're home, you're two weeks having returned. Was it everything you hoped it would be? Oh yeah. Yes. I dreamed of this since I was 10 and I, I don't regret it. And I, I can look back and tell this story and it's always going to be a good conversation to, have to tell this whole story. Um, I don't regret it all. It was, it was great. Um, we were just naive or ignorant about what to expect. Um, you know, like I was saying, we hunt in Idaho. We're not, we're not used to this. So we were like, let's just go. Hell, it's just five miles, you know? And so, <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's, it's good to make people aware of be more prepared than us. And yeah. hear what we, what I screwed up on, you know, I, I, I took the full responsibility and felt awful for what I put these guys through. Um, but you know, we were all good sports about it and we just, we communicated well and got back together. That's huge. Daniel, <clears throat> Going on this experience, um, did you participate much in the planning part or was it just like your dad's like, hey, we're going to do this hunt together. And so you're just like, cool, I'm going along for the ride. Or were you a part of watching some of the YouTube videos, discussing the plan, going after the porcupine herd versus the 40 mile herd? Um, you know, were you a part of the planning process or were you more just along for the ride? Well, I wasn't entirely a part of the planning. Like I like chose some things like yes, I wanted to um do this and stuff. But um for expectation expectations I was perfectly fine and everything. Yeah, he, he ended up watching a lot of videos with me on YouTube. 
Was um, it harder or easier than you thought it would be? Harder, much harder. If you were recommending this to somebody, what kind of, would you say it's more about the mental training, the physical training? I mean, what, what do people need to do to be prepared for a trip? You know, you as a 14 year old young man, what would you say to somebody to say like, all right, here's what you should do to prepare for this trip mentally, physically, spiritually, whatever, whatever they need to do. So what's your advice? I think just always think that you can do it and just keep like working out or like um, staying exercised and stuff. The physical exercise component was a big deal for you, huh? You just pointed out the um, mental. Um, we could have given up. We could have um, put, but what got us home was the the drive to to survive and just push, and that that's a big mental. We pushed through fatigue on the way back. I was yeah. it became mental on the way back. On the way out, it was it was hey, let's just find a bull. On the way back, we're like it was all mental. Our bodies were shot, but yeah, yeah, mental was a big deal. I didn't think of that till you pointed that out. Here's kind of a bummer and a good thing too, because I'm thoroughly enjoying this conversation, like getting getting details, like you're you're building puzzle pieces to this. And I know everybody's Alaska experience is going to be different. You know, some people just opt to have a, a plane, just drop them in the tundra. I've heard pros and cons of that. Like sometimes you get dropped in the tundra and you you're in one area and you never see a caribou for seven days. Cause you can't, you're not mobile. There's nothing out there. And it's like, I just got dropped in the middle of nowhere for seven days and just, yeah. That terrifies me that you have a little bit more control of being able to move to a location. Like you could drive up and down the road further until you feel like, all right, we're at least seeing them. Then you can hike off. But we really only got to your caribou experience and knowing, you know, you shot it morning of day two, it took you all the way into the evening. You get back wet, cold, exhausted, ready to, ready to find heat. You turn on the van, get warm. So you, you at least survived part a of the experience so i'm gonna say because we're kind of already at the hour mark with the podcast we're gonna have to dive into a part b to understand all right now that you've done this once how did you shift your strategy knowing that you have another tag to fill you've already learned a little bit of what it takes so now you have to make some decisions on how do we do this again so i i think what we're gonna have to do is just set up a plan, you know, like a part B to this and just go, all right, give us the part B because now you've made, you, you've already lived it once. Now that you've lived it once, expectations change and strategy changes, that kind of thing. So we're going to have to dive into how did you put a strategy together for uh, harvesting, you know, having your son harvest an animal too. So, yeah. Um, yeah. That his story is great as well. It's, it's full of different challenges. I love the fact that uh you guys that you you've written this down like you you're getting ready to kind of publish the whole experience and, yeah, and but, I'm assuming um, that that's inclusive of the planning phase all the way through the experience yeah it's, it's more about the experience um i didn't want to forget any details so i quickly wrote wrote it all down in detail best i could and made this this cool little book through a publisher and it'll it it's it's available now but also I guess in, on the 5th of October, it'll be on Amazon. It's pretty cool. but Super cool. Tell What's the book name and how do people find it? It's called Hell. It's just five miles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think on by October 5th, mid-October, they can get an Amazon and, and type in my name, Raymond Barron's, or just Hell, it's just five miles. 
should be able to show up there. But the website I wrote it on was bookemon.com. So book just like B O O K Emon. How do you spell that? E M O N. So bookemon.com. And so the title is Hell. It's just five miles. Yeah. Uh, it's brilliant. Yeah. So if you go to bookemon.com and then you can type in my name or the book in the search right there. Yeah. I can't control the pricing on those guys though. So you can just get, if you wanted to read the ebook, that's the cheapest way to go. The okay. other, the other ones, they kind of charge a lot. And you brought a camera guy. Uh, how do people find that? You're going to post it on YouTube. Yep. Um, it is bearridge.com. Um, make sure there's no, yeah, there's no underscores or anything. It's just bear Ridge outdoors. Okay. And bear is spelled B E H R. Yep. Yep. B E H R. And then there will see a little, a little bear with a mountain behind him for the logo. I'm hoping to get that all put up. Daniel's video is going to be a lot better. You you got great footage close up of the shot and it looks legit. Mine's kind of hesitant to even put mine on because it's just, we're, we're struggling. We don't get all the good video we wanted. That's right. Sounds like the title of your book, hell, it's just five miles. So yeah, yeah it sounds, sounds like the video will line up well with the, uh, with the title of your book and, you know, just the whole experience as a whole. Yep. Well, let's, let's put a pause on this discussion for now and we'll reschedule a part B date and dive into more of Daniel's story. Uh, we, we got the front end of a caribou hunt both uh, the difficulties, but also the success and reward. I love the fact that you can look back at it now. It was worth every bit of struggle because that's a lot of struggle. So I, I'm, I'm excited that it was that at the end of this experience, the value of it still outweighed the struggle of it. Oh, yes. And half, most of the way through, we knew that it was we're going to like it later. Yeah. <laughs> Do the suck right now and we'll be a, we'll, we'll laugh about this tomorrow. I love that mindset. Well, guys, it was a pleasure having you on. I look forward to hearing about your upcoming adventures, seeing some more posts in the Huntley Gap, capturing some of those stories, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having us. This is great. Caribou hunting in Alaska is definitely a bucket list hunt, and I hope to one day share my story of this hunt with you. One of the things I love about the Huntley Gap is the ability to capture and share stories like this with others. It's more than just a story. Stories like Ray and Daniel's provide inspiration and make something that seems impossible suddenly become a possibility. I've already experienced that this year with my son on our recent bear hunt in Oregon. Just a year ago, that hunt was something I never would have dreamed about. So I want to thank Garrett Weaver and the many sponsors that have come together in the On Point Experience League to help make adventures like this possible for the Huntley community. Good luck out there and be sure to capture your hunts this fall inside the Huntley Gap.